you've turned to Psalm 51 and also Romans 12. Uh, Lindsay and I had a really nice time in Gilbert, Arizona this past weekend. We were away. Uh, we stayed with Pastor John Gerizzo and his wife, Roberta. Uh, they were very kind and hospitable to us. And, and I was blessed to preach at Grace Covenant Church in Gilbert, Arizona in the morning and also at the quarterly gathering of, I had to write this down because I can't remember it, but the quarterly gathering of Confessional Baptists of the Southwest in, in the evening. Uh, it was a, a really nice time uh, there in Gilbert. I'm glad to be home. There's no place like home. We did miss you guys very much. I preached from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8 in the morning there in Gilbert, and in the evening I preached on Romans 12, 9 through 21. And as I was writing these sermons in preparation for that trip, I thought to myself, uh, these would be very good sermons for the saints at Emmaus to hear also. Uh, And also, it feels like it would be a good time to take just a little bit of a break uh, from the book of Revelation, at least to me. I know that's subjective and you might not agree, but that's my opinion. And so I will preach on Romans 12, 1 through 8 this morning, uh, Romans 12, 9 through 21 next Sunday, and then Pastor Steve Martin, who is the ARBCA coordinator, will be here on November the 5th uh, to teach in the Emmaus Essential Sunday School Hour and also to preach. I don't know what his text will be. Uh, so Lord willing, we'll b- jump back into Revelation on November the 12th, And I do plan to pick up the pace a little bit uh, through the book of Revelation because I do feel like we've all gotten hang of how uh, the book works. And so I think we can move a little bit more quickly beginning on November the 12th. Uh, Romans chapter 12 is a very famous passage, uh, especially the two verses of it. You'll be familiar with it, I'm sure. Uh, And as you do know, the danger with famous passages of Scripture is that they can grow so familiar to us that over time we begin to handle them carelessly. Uh, We might recite them from memory, but we do so in a sloppy way and without careful consideration being given to the text. Uh, But we should also remember that famous passages of Scripture, such as Romans 12, especially verses 1 and 2, are famous for a good reason. They they do tend to speak to matters of great importance uh, to the Christian They tend to get to the heart of an issue. They tend to offer great and needful comfort and exhortation to the people of God. And so my prayer for us this morning is that though this text might be familiar to us, the Lord would help us to give careful attention to His Word so that we might understand it better and having understood it, that we might believe what it says and then go on to live accordingly. I'd like to begin by reading from the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 51, which is also a famous and familiar text, Psalm 51. To the choir master, the psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So this is after David had been confronted concerning his sin. And here is what David said. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me 
a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let us go now to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. The Apostle Paul uh, here writes to the church in Rome, saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God had assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service in our Uh, serving the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So far the reading of God's holy word, we do pray that the Lord would also bless uh, the preaching of his word and that he would help us apply it uh, to our lives. I, I do have three introductory observations concerning Romans chapter 12. First of all, I think it is important to recognize from the outset that the apostle in this passage is making an appeal to us. Uh, To appeal is to ask for something earnestly. Uh, To appeal to someone is to plead with them. Uh, What follows in this passage will indeed come to us with the force of a commandment, for Paul is here telling the Christian how he or she is to live in this world, But Paul does not merely deliver a command to us. He does more than that. He appeals to the Christian. He pleads with us, just as a parent might plead with their child to do what is right out of love for them. So it is right, I think, for us to hear urgency and concern in the apostle's voice as if he were saying to us, brothers and sisters, it is out of my love for you and for God that I plead with you to now live in this way. His earnest and sincere concern for us, I think, should grab our attention from from the outset. Two, notice that the appeal he will make is one that could only be made by the mercies of God. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to do such and such. 
Indeed, uh, the whole book of Romans, uh, of course, we are jumping right into the middle of it and have not studied it up to this point, but I think you're familiar with it enough to, to know that the whole book of Romans up to this point has emphasized the necessity of God's mercy and grace in the Christian life. Uh, the truth of the matter is that we would not have faith at all in Christ, uh, nor the forgiveness of sins that come through faith in Him, were it not for the mercy of God. God, by His grace, has brought us to Christ Jesus. He has made us alive in Him and has given to us uh, the gift of faith. And neither would we be able to obey Christ in this world were it not for God's mercy. So not only are we saved by the grace of God, but we are also sanctified uh, by the grace of God. And Paul knows this very well. He, He mentions it often in his letters. And so when he pleads with us to live in a particular way, as he will in this passage... He is careful to do so only by the mercies of God. So the Christian life is is one that is lived from beginning to end, um, dependent upon God's grace. Our cry then should be, throughout the Christian life, Give me more grace, Lord. Uh, That should be our cry. Uh, Three, notice that the appeal the apostle will make is based upon something that he has said before. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, Paul writes in Romans 12.1. I do remember hearing this rule of interpretation when I was quite young. I think it was my very first lesson in hermeneutics, even though I did not know it was a lesson in what is called hermeneutics at the time. It is a good rule. Uh, The rule is this. You've probably heard it as well. Whenever you encounter the word, therefore, in a text, you should stop to ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore, right? And the word therefore in Romans 12.1 indicates to us that what the apostle is about to command is based upon something that he has said before. And a careful consideration of things reveals that the whole of the book of Romans is in his mind. He is not just referring back to some isolated statement in Romans chapter 11, but he is referring back to all that he has said in the book of Romans up to this point. It's as if Paul is saying, Now, based upon all that I have said to you concerning your salvation in Christ Jesus, in chapters 1 through 11, I do now plead with you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to live in this way. And so his exhortation or the command that he delivers is not just kind of you know, pulled out of thin air, but it is based upon all of the doctrine that he has presented up to this point in the book of Romans. And, and personally, I'm, I'm thankful for the word, therefore, here in Romans 12.1, uh, because embedded within this one word is this tremendously important reminder that the Christian life is neither about doctrine alone, nor is it about moral living alone, But it is one where, by the grace of God, the truths of God are used by the Spirit of God to bring about obedience to the will of God in the lives of His people. And so here we see that right doctrine should lead to right practice. Uh, The Apostle is concerned that we have right doctrine, of course, and uh, the first 11 chapters of Romans do prove this point. But he is also concerned that we live lives of holiness, And chapters 12 through 16 of the book of Romans uh, prove this. So evidently the two things, right doctrine and right living, are not contrary to one another, but they do work together 
the one informing and enabling the other. So the word therefore here in Romans 12.1 points in two directions then. It points backward into the first 11 chapters of this wonderful letter wherein Paul lays out for us in a most beautiful and systematic way the doctrine of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ alone and by the grace of God alone. And it also points forward into the last five chapters wherein Paul labors to apply the truths he has set forth to the Christ follower. Even just a very quick overview of of Romans chapter 12 chapters 12 through 16 reveals, even if you just read the the headings there in in, in your text, that Paul is working very hard to apply everything that he has now said to us in the first 11 chapters of this book to the Christian. And so the truths contained within God's word, that is the doctrines, are to be applied. If they are rightly understood and truly believed, then they will, by the grace of God and by the progressive working of His Holy Spirit, produce holiness within his children. And this needs to be emphasized, brothers and sisters. Yes, we, we love our doctrine. I think it is good that we love our doctrine and that we all together say doctrine is important. We must consider doctrine. Uh, but if it does not produce holiness within us, then I think we have not understood the doctrine at all. We might have understood the facts of it, but we have not grasped it in the heart. Uh, a good and careful and right understanding of all that the Apostle Paul has to say in the book of Romans, will lead us to the conclusion that right doctrine is going to produce within us holy living. And so this is the thing that the apostle is pleading for. He is pleading with us that we would not walk away from the truths of God's word unchanged. But having considered all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus, having considered the forgiveness of our sins and the righteousness we now possess through faith in Christ, having considered our freedom from the curse of the law and our new life in Christ, and having considered the certainty of our eternal inheritance, a certainty that is grounded not in ourselves but in Christ's finished work, Paul's heartfelt plea is that we would go on from that consideration to live our lives properly First of all, towards God, and then, secondly, towards one another in this world. Let's first consider the way that the Apostle pleads with us that we would develop and maintain a proper attitude towards God as we live in this fallen world. Uh, This is really the appeal that is made in verses 1 and 2. I'm going to spend the majority of our time together on this one point uh, this morning and then Uh, We'll speak briefly to the second point, and we will pick up there uh, next uh, Lord's Day. Uh, First of all, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to do what? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is his appeal. Brothers, I am pleading with you, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, after reading the the first 11 chapters of Romans, we might feel compelled to stop and say, Paul, if all of this is true, if God has really been this kind to us, if He has really been so gracious to provide for us so richly in Christ Jesus, if, if all of this is true, Paul, What should be our response to Him? And the answer He gives is, present your bodies 
as a living sacrifice to God. The first response, of course, would be this. Trust not in yourself, but in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. Uh, That case was made most thoroughly in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. But as a Christian now, as one who has faith in Christ, how should we respond to, to God's great love for us as poured out for us in Christ Jesus? And the answer he gives is, present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. This is what you should do. When we hear the word sacrifice, certainly we are to think of the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant, wherein the worshiper was to bring an animal to be slain on the altar to offer it up to the Lord as an act of worship before Him. Uh, That sacrificial system, as you know, was done away with when Christ died and rose again. One of the functions of that Old Covenant system was to point forward to the coming of the Christ who would be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And once the Christ came and did finish the work of making actual atonement for the sins of His people, that old covenant system was taken away and it is no more. But that is not to say that the new covenant is without a sacrificial system. Indeed, it is only right that sacrifices be offered up to God under the new covenant too, not to make atonement for sin, For Christ has done that in full. It is finished. We could add nothing uh, to His work. Uh, But as an act of worship before God and out of gratitude for all that He has graciously provided. And under the new covenant, we are to offer up not bulls and goats, but we are to present our own bodies to the Lord, Paul says. So here is the sacrificial system of the new covenant. Not the offering up of the blood of bulls and goats, but the offering up of our very selves to the Lord, the offering up of our bodies. To present your body to God is to surrender your whole self to Him. To present your body to God is to say, Lord, I am yours. Everything that I am, body and soul, I present it to you. I'm your humble servant. Lord, use me to accomplish your purposes and to bring honor to your most holy name. This is what it means to present your body as a sacrifice to God. It is to offer up your whole self to Him. This is what we are to do in response to God's great love for us in Christ Jesus. I think it is important to notice that the new covenant sacrifices differ from those of the old covenant and that these are to be living sacrifices. Uh, The animals under the old covenant would be brought alive to the altar But once sacrificed, they were dead. But under the new covenant, the exact opposite is true. We who were dead in our trespasses and sins, God has made alive. And having been made alive by the Spirit, we do then present our bodies to God as a sacrifice that is is now living. To offer your body as a living sacrifice is to die to self, but to live for God with, with everything that you are. Notice that these new covenant sacrifices are similar to the old and that they too are to be presented as holy and acceptable to God. I think it is well known, if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, that the animals brought to the altar under the old covenant had to be without blemish. These, these animals had to be pure and, and, and perfect, not deformed. You know, It's not as if the worshiper was to bring the worst of his flock to offer up to the Lord, uh, some blemished lamb or some uh, goat that had some sort of uh, dis- disfigurement. Uh, but they were to bring 
uh, offerings that were without blemish. And once brought, these offerings would be consecrated by the priest set apart and made holy. Only then would the sacrifice be acceptable to God. And God desires the same for you and, and me, that we would offer ourselves up to God as sacrifices that are holy and acceptable. We, we are not to give God the worst part of us or only some part of us. We're not to present to God some sacrifice that is corrupted thoroughly by sin, but we are to strive to live holy in this world and to offer ourselves up to God in holiness in a way that is acceptable to the Lord. And of course, it is true, brothers and sisters, that we do all struggle with sin. Uh, no one among us is perfect. And truly, our hope is in Christ alone. Uh, He bore our sins in His body on that tree, and He has clothed us with His righteousness if we have faith in Him. Uh, That is where our hope is found, not in ourselves, not in our personal righteousness or our personal holiness, but in the righteousness of Christ imputed or given to us and received by faith. That is where our hope is found, and we cannot in any way add to the perfection of Christ's finished work. God is not saying to us, I will only accept you if you will make yourself holy. No, He says, come to me through faith in Christ alone and in His finished work. And so all of our hope for the forgiveness of sins rests in Christ. But the thing that I'm wanting to emphasize with you this morning is that the Apostle, knowing all of that, and and indeed having said all of that, in, in, in great detail and with great precision in the first half of the book of Romans, is now pleading with us to go on living holy lives in this world. And that is a truth we also need to be reminded of, that holiness does matter to the Lord. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Earlier in, in Romans... Paul offered up this exhortation. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace, Romans 6, 12 through 14. So I guess the rule is broken there that uh, the first 11 chapters are all about doctrine and the last uh, five are all about application. For here in the middle of Romans chapter 6, the, the apostle does also take a break to use the word therefore again. And what is he doing here except saying, now that you have been set free in Christ Jesus, do not let sin remain or reign in your mortal body to obey its passions. Take your members, everything that you are, use it to bring glory to God and to obey Him and not to obey sin. And so, if we truly understand Paul's doctrine, then we will first of all abandon all hope and self and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins. But then, we will immediately go on to pursue holy living with all that is in us and by the grace of God. Notice that verse 1 concludes with the remark, which is your spiritual worship. This this act of worship, this offering up of your bodies as a living sacrifice is spiritual, Paul says. Um, Actually, some English translations say reasonable instead of spiritual. 
So to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, is your reasonable service, says the New King James Version. And so obviously there is a complexity uh, to the Greek word which makes finding the perfect English word a a little bit difficult here at the end of verse 1. The idea is that this worship or service that we are to offer up to God is to be from the heart. It's to be this kind of worship, worship from the heart. Calvin says in his commentary on the book of Romans that this sentence, the one that says, which is your reasonable service or spiritual service, I think was added that Paul might more clearly apply and confirm the preceding exhortation as though he had said, offer yourselves a sacrifice to God if ye have it in your heart to serve God, for this is the right way of serving Him, from which, if any depart, they are but false worshippers. So Calvin says that this little phrase, which is your spiritual or reasonable service or worship, is meant to exhort uh, the reader to, to go on and to offer up this sacrifice to God from the heart, and not just to go through the motions and to present some sort of external worship of God. Hodge, in his commentary on the Epistle to the Romans, says, "...the simplest interpretation is that which takes the word in its natural sense, namely, pertaining to the mind. It is a mental or spiritual service in opposition to ceremonial and external observation." And so here Hodge also comes to the same conclusion, though he uses different words to describe it. Our worship, brothers and sisters, it's to involve the whole of our being. We're to offer ourselves up completely to God. And as we do it, we're to do it sincerely and from the heart. We are to give ourselves over to the Lord and we are to say, I am yours, Lord. I am your servant. I think the simplest way of saying it is that Paul is exhorting the Christian to to not go through the motions of worship, but to offer yourself up to God sincerely from the heart and with the mind truly believing that this is what ought to be done. Our minds must be truly convinced that it is only reasonable for God to be worshipped by us in this way, given who He is and all that He has done for us in Christ Jesus. It is only reasonable that we offer our whole selves to God as sacrifices that are living, holy, and acceptable. Think of it just for a moment, of all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And we consider it, and we ask the question, what should be our response? What are you going to say except the only proper and reasonable response is this, from the heart I am to give my whole self to God. I'm to worship Him supremely. I'm to serve Him with everything that I am in this world. I'm to abandon all hope and self. I'm to abandon all pursuit of sin. And I'm going to live now in obedience to God and to His Word. And I think it is important to recognize that the Old Covenant worshipers were also to engage in their worship from the heart and not just externally and ceremonially. Uh, Going through the motions uh, was a problem for them Uh, just as as it is for us. And that is why I read from Psalm 51 at the beginning of the sermon here. Do you remember hearing that David, uh, when he spoke to the Lord in Psalm 51, did say, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Certainly David knew that God had 
uh, ordained that worshipers come to him and worship him under the old covenant through the offering up of the blood of bulls and goats. David was not denying that fact, but what is the point he is making here in Psalm 51? That, that to truly worship God is to come to him from the heart and not just to worship him externally. We're to come to him with a broken and contrite spirit and with faith in the heart. And so, brothers and sisters, given all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus, it is only reasonable that we offer our whole selves up to Him, body and soul, as sacrifices that are living, holy, and acceptable. This we are to do from the heart, and with the mind made up that it is only right, this we are to do, being ever dependent upon, the, upon God and His mercies. I might pause and just ask the question, how are you doing in this right now, in your life? How are you doing in regard to in regards to pursuing holiness as a Christian? Is it something that you're committed to? Are you actively worshiping God? Not just here on the Lord's Day, though this is where we do it primarily and corporately as the body of Christ in obedience to the command of Christ. We gather together for worship on the Lord's Day. But are you pursuing holiness in the whole of your life? Or have you only given God a part of you? you know, Just a little bit of time, just a little bit of money, just a little bit of my heart. And there you are withholding the rest of it. This is not the way to worship God, but to worship God truly is to come to Him and to say, Lord, I'm laying it all down before You. My body, my whole being is being laid before You as a living sacrifice. You've probably noticed, I'm sure, that this is easier said than done. Uh, The corruptions that remain in our flesh do war against us in our resolve to worship God in this way? Can you say amen to that? Um, The evil one does also war against us, tempting us to abandon the service of God and to serve self instead. Can you say amen to that? And the world in which we live pulls down upon us continuously to make us conform to its ways. You feel it. So here we are in, in church together on the Lord's Day. And we're giving attention to the Word of God. And everyone in here, I would imagine, is saying, yes and amen, I I want to do this. I I, I intend to do this, to offer my whole self up to God as a living sacrifice. But you know as well as as I know that when we walk out of these doors, we find that there, there is a war, there is a battle that rages. And we do not always succeed at this, but in fact we fail in many ways to live in such a wholeheartedly devoted way before our God. The Apostle knows that the battle is real, and that's why he addresses it. He has urged us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, but now look what he does. He he tells us what must happen within us if we are to worship and serve God faithfully in this world. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. First, the Apostle tells us what must not happen if we are to indeed offer our whole selves up to God as living sacrifices faithfully in this world. Here is what must not happen. Do not be conformed to this world, he warns. Uh, This world, uh, that is to say this present evil age that is at enmity with God, has a way about it. I'm sure you've noticed Uh, those who belong to it, uh, those not in Christ, They think in a worldly way. 
And they live in a worldly way. They live not to the glory of God, but they live for themselves. They live not for the world to come, but for the here and now only. And Paul warns the Christian, do not conform to the way of this world. Do not be pressed into its mold. Now, by no means is Paul saying that the Christian must disengage from the world completely. Uh, This was not Paul's way, nor was it the way of Christ. And neither is Paul saying that the Christian must come across as strange in this world. I actually believe that Christians ought to function quite well within society. Uh, But he is here warning against being pressed into the mold of the world so that we think as the world thinks, speak as the world speaks, and do as the world does. The Apostle is saying, do not conform to the sinful patterns of this world. Instead, the Christian is to be transformed by the renewal of their mind. Uh, Transformation is what is needed if the Christian is to worship and serve God faithfully in this world. The Christ follower himself must be changed if he is to resist the gravitational pull of the world to rise above to the service of God. This is what must happen. If we are indeed to live our lives out before God as living sacrifices, as as, as a continual act of worship before Him, then we ourselves must be changed. We must be transformed to the core of our being. I think it is very important for us to remember what we once were before we came to Christ. I'll use another passage from Paul in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, where he reminds us that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This was our condition, and this was our way prior to knowing Christ. And some of us lived in that condition and walked in that way longer than others. But then God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. The new birth that is here described came to us in an instant, didn't it? We were at one point dead, and then God, uh, by His grace, made us alive in Christ Jesus. That happened in a moment. Uh, We went from blind to seeing. We went from deaf to hearing. We went from dead to... To alive, and it happened in an instant. Our salvation also came to us in an instant. We were enemies of God in bondage to sin like the rest of mankind, and God did save us out of that the moment we looked to Christ. But I think it is important for us to remember that our sanctification, that is, this process of transformation that Paul mentions here in Romans 12, that lasts for a lifetime. It is not instantaneous, but is progressive. I think it should be noticed also that the Greek word translated transformed here in Romans 12 is in the perfect tense in the Greek indicating that this transformation is going to be an ongoing process. It was not something that happened in a moment in the past, but it is an ongoing process. I've noticed that some do experience a kind of rapid and radical transformation when they come to faith in Christ. Sometimes the Lord does change a person rather quickly, it seems, freeing them 
uh, in an instant from the worldly and sinful habits that they once had prior to their new life in Christ. I'm not saying that they're made perfect in an instant, but I am saying that there are some, when they come to faith in Christ, they seem to experience a kind of radical conversion and transformation. Uh, There are others, though, whose transformation seems to come more slowly. And why God permits this, only He knows. I do trust that it is ultimately for His glory and and our ultimate good. Uh, Whatever your experience has been, do notice that Paul commands us to be transformed. The word is not only in the perfect tense, it's also in the imperative mood. It, It is a command. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, Paul says. He commands it. There is to be a difference between the old worldly man and the new man in Christ. The Christian is no longer to live according to the world or as the world lives, but is to pursue holy living all to the glory of God. And in order for this to happen, a transformation must take place within us. We are to pursue it. It is a command that Paul gives. Notice that this transformation will come about only by the renewal of the mind. In order to be transformed or changed, the Christian must learn new things, uh, things that he did not know before. And he must also relearn things. Uh, There are some things that we thought we knew that we come to find out that we did did not know at all. There's error in our thinking. Frequently, I, I find myself in counseling situations asking the question of the person I'm meeting with, are you sure that that thought you have is true? Are you sure it's true? Their response is usually this, well, I don't know. My reply is, well, where did it come from? Where did that thought come from? And they say, I guess I've just always thought that way. And then we do together uh, go to the Word of God to begin to renew the mind. That is what Christian counseling is. It is is just simply a a meeting together, a conversation where the Word of God is uh, applied to individual situations, specific situations in life. Uh, the, The mind must be renewed. And I am saying that you should not be surprised, brothers and sisters, that in Christ we must relearn things. Our view of the world must be changed. We must learn to think God's thoughts after Him and to see the world as He sees it. If the transformation that God desires to see in us is to be real and lasting, there must be a renewal of the mind, and an actual changing of the heart. You've noticed, I'm sure, that there are many in this world who do try to transform themselves. They want to get their life right with God, they say. I've heard this so many times. For my children, I want to get my life right with God. You know, And, and they want to straighten up. I don't know what motivates it, but they want to straighten it up. My life is a mess. I want it straightened out. I want to, I want to fix it and live a good life. And some, they set out to accomplish it, and and they seek to do so by the power of their own will, right? They want to make themselves better people, more moral people, more godly uh, religious people. Uh, But if they do not first submit to the Word of God, to truly learn its doctrine, and believe what it says in the heart, and if the Spirit of God is not at work within them to renew their mind and change their heart, the transformation that they are seeking will not last. Certainly, it will not last to the glory of God. Perhaps you have witnessed this sort of thing in others. Perhaps you have even witnessed it in yourself, to where you have tried to sanctify yourself in your own strength and according to your own 
willpower. It is so important to recognize that the word transformed is not only in the perfect tense, indicating that it is a process, and the imperative mood, indicating that it is a command, but it is also in the passive voice, indicating that this transformation is something that must be done to us. That is what the passive voice indicates. Uh, We are to be progressively uh, transformed. It's going to take time. It is a command, so it is something that we must pursue, but it is here um, in the passive voice indicating that in order to have it, it it has to be something that is done to us. Uh, The command is not transform yourself, but it is be transformed by uh, the renewal of your mind. And and so how important it is, brothers and sisters, uh, that we seek transformation. We must pursue it. But we are to seek it, not by the exertion of our willpower alone, but by the renewal of our minds in submission to the Word of God and in constant dependence upon the Spirit of God working within us. Uh, The Christian must cry out to God, saying, Lord, change me to the core. Enable me to know the truths of your word and to believe them sincerely. Engraven your law deeply upon my heart and do help me to see the world as you see it, Lord. It it is only then that the transformation will be genuine, lasting, and to the glory of God. The end result of this renewal of the mind that Paul speaks of here, this changing of the heart, is that by testing we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I think the Apostle burrows down here to the deepest objective when it comes to our sanctification, that our minds and hearts would be so renewed by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God that what God wills, we will that what God desires for us is what we most desire, that what God has commanded is what we are most happy to do. Do you understand the concept here? This is the goal of this renewal of the mind, that we would be so changed that what God desires is what we desire. By nature, our hearts are bent away from God and towards evil. You've noticed that, I'm sure. By nature, our hearts are bent away from God and towards evil. And some of those corruptions do remain within the hearts of of Christians. But over time, with, with much practice by testing and by the renewal of the mind, we do learn to approve that which God approves, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I have been asked many times before, Pastor, how can I overcome this sin or that? You know, that's a frequent question that I'm asked. How do I overcome this sin? I hate that I continue to fall into it, whatever it is. How can I overcome it? And, of course, there are many practical things that can be said in response to a question like, like that. Um, are, are you partaking of the means of grace thoughtfully? You know, are you coming to church on the Lord's Day, hearing the Word preached? Are you reading the Scriptures? Are you praying? Are you partaking of the Lord's Supper with faith in your heart and, and having prepared your heart? Are you partaking of the means of grace thoughtfully, I might ask? That's a practical thing as a pastor that I might uh, say. Um, have you asked for accountability from others? 
That they would ask you, how are you doing in this matter that you continue to struggle with? Have you stumbled or have you fallen in this particular sin? And those are all good things to deal with. You know, have, Are you putting yourself in a position where you might be tempted to sin this way? Or, or have you taken practical steps to avoid it? But, but truthfully, we experience real victory over a particular sin only when there is developed within us a true and heartfelt disdain for that sin, whatever it may be, and a true love for that which God has commanded instead. Something needs to change within us if we are indeed to have victory over the sins that do cling to us, right? Something needs to change within our heart to where we begin to look at that thing, whatever it might be, and we say, I hate it from the core of my being because my heart has been changed. I see it for what it is now. It is evil. And I hate what it does to me and that it breaks my, my close fellowship bond with God or my close fellowship bond with, with other brothers and sisters in Christ. I cannot stand the thing any longer. And I have learned over time by testing to enjoy so much more my close and consistent walk with God. Uh, that transformation must come about by the renewal of the mind and through testing as the Spirit of God works. And so I think we have the first answer to the question, what should we do since God has been so gracious to us? Um, if we were reading through the book of Romans, that is the question we would probably ask by the time we come to the end of Romans 11. What should we do since God has been so gracious to us? And the apostle does, first of all, plead with us to develop and maintain a proper attitude towards God as we live in this fallen world. We are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. I'm only going to very briefly mention the second point because I I do wish to pick up here on the next Lord's Day uh, to develop this point further, but I want you to at least notice this this morning. Uh, Notice that beginning with verse 3, the apostle pleads with us to develop and maintain a proper attitude towards one another as we live in this world. The Christian life is not to be lived in isolation as if all that matters to God is our personal walk with Christ and our personal worship of God. But God has redeemed a people for Himself. And these are to enjoy communion with one another on on the basis of their having been united together in Christ Jesus by faith. The Christian life is to be lived in the context of the local church where Christians are to love one another. It should come as no surprise to us that Paul makes these uh, two points of application first, for they do follow after Christ's summary of the law, do they not? Think of it. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Christ's answer, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Uh, Paul, uh, what shall we do in response to the glorious salvation you've just described to us? It seems to me that the answer he gives is this, keep God's law. Love God with all that you are, offering your whole self up to God as a living sacrifice, and love one another, laying down yourselves for the good of others within Christ's church. We will return to that subject on the next Lord's Day. For today, I do hope that you would agree with the Apostle, saying, yes, it is true. It is only right and reasonable that I offer my whole self up to God 
as a living sacrifice, to worship and serve Him in this world. And it is only right that in offering myself up to God, I do also lay down my life for the good of my brothers and sisters in Christ. This is only right, given all that God has done for me in Christ Jesus. For He is my Creator. More than that, He is my Redeemer. How could I possibly respond to His love in any lesser way? Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we do ask for your help. Enable us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. Lord, we know that this is a summary of your law, and with our mouths and from the heart we do say that we want to keep it, but we confess that we do struggle to keep it. Lord, our flesh wars against us. So too does the evil one along with the world. Lord, we are asking that you would transform us by the renewal of our minds and to the very core of our being so that we might live wholly before you in this world, keeping your will from the heart. Uh, These things we do pray in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and Lord, and all of God's people say, Amen.